The mission publishes the number one newsletter for accelerated learning. Learn from the best and brightest by joining our community at themission.co forward slash subscribe. On this episode of the Mission Daily, Chad sits down with Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation. In this conversation, they discuss the work Alex does at the Human Rights Foundation and the two kinds of technology that are changing society. We hope you enjoy the episode. So Alex, you were saying that there were two kinds of technology in your worldview. How do you define that? How do you think about that? Yeah. So from the human rights activist point of view, uh, when you look at all the different technology that's changing our societies, I like to look at two general kinds of technology, uh, authoritarian technology and anti-authoritarian technology. So this obviously comes from my focus at looking at governance and looking at democracies and dictatorships and the different ways that people organize each other in today's world. And what we're noticing is that governments, especially governments that have fewer checks and balances on their power, so for example, China being the, the obvious like sort of case study, you know, bend or manipulate uh, what I would call authoritarian technology to serve their aims. So this would be, for example, big data, AI, machine learning. At the same time, you have all kinds of disruptive, troublemaking individuals experimenting and tinkering with what some people call defensive technology because it's so much cheaper to defend than to attack, or I would prefer to call it sort of anti-authoritarian technology. And, and the key link between all the different anti-authoritarian technologies is that they're very decentralizing. Sure. And you mentioned one prior to the interview. You know, you recently did an interview with the CEO of Coinbase, Brian Armstrong. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a technology that is um, moving the world in a more voluntary direction. It seems to be creating more opportunities for more and more people. Is that an example of your anti-authoritarian technologies? Yeah, absolutely. When you when you look at crypto and really specifically at Bitcoin, it's kind of coming from a legacy of different technologies, right? So we at the Human Rights Foundation for a decade have been working with activists and journalists who need to protect their data and their communications, right? So we started by looking at encrypted communications. So you can think of a company or an organization like Signal, right? Or a company like Wicker, right? So they exist to help you send messages to other people in an encrypted safe way. That would be like one really key anti-authoritarian technology. Another one would be Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a censorship-resistant money, is the way that I put on my human rights hat and look at it. You, you can, we could talk all day about all the different ways to understand Bitcoin, sure. whether it's money, you know, monetary policy, or you know, whether it's proof-of-work algorithm, or there's so many different interesting things about Bitcoin. But to me, it's about censorship-resistant money. You know, never before have humans had a way to send value to someone else in the world and it'd be unstoppable. Right. So that's another example. And there are a few others that I'll just mention briefly to, to give some color to this. I think censorship resistant storage is really important. So IPFS would oh, be wow. a really great example. Yeah. So Cloudflare recently allows you to, instead of storing your website on like a central server, like, like Azure, Amazon Web Services, you can actually store it on IPFS. So this just makes it a lot harder for, let's say, a malicious government or actor to take it down because it's encrypted across a distributed set of, right. of locations. Another one that's that's really caught my eye recently is decentralized internet access. So we think about how most people have, you know, an ISP, right, an internet service provider. And it's usually you don't have that many options. I mean, some people have a luxury of options, but a lot of people 
especially in certain countries, only have one option. Right. And that, that is a huge censorship point, right? So people are working on both like satellite. Obviously, you've seen some of these big companies like Virgin and Facebook looking at how can we get satellite Wi-Fi to the world. Sure. But also mesh networking is really kind of taking off in certain areas. Gotenna. So, and so I was going to mention there. Gotenna. Yeah. So Gotenna obviously kind of branded itself, I think, for a while as like, hey, if you're going hiking and you're, you're out in the <laughs> middle of nowhere and you need internet, like you can daisy chain our devices to get internet to you. But now people are thinking of it in, in another way where they actually just launched a product with it's a collaboration with Samurai Wallet, which is a Bitcoin wallet company, so that you can send and receive Bitcoin transactions without needing access to the internet. That's it's, incredible. It's pretty mind blowing. So so that's that's another one. So decentralized access to internet. And this uh, is ultimately about protecting freedom of speech, protecting yourself, your loved ones, those you care about. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, we, we have to think of these technologies as ways that you can actually preserve privacy and yeah. own your own data, communications, and money in an age of otherwise authoritarian technology, right? So when you think about the fact that uh, I think one of the most popular TED Talks this year at the main conference was Jaron Lanier, you know, talking about the idea of, you know, we need to build a, a new kind of internet where when I interact with you, no one should be able to manipulate police or profit off of that communication without our permission. And that's not really possible right now because Web 1.0 this dream of peer-to-peer of -peer open source uh, interactivity that Web 1.0 promised grew into two, Web 2.0. So on top of this decentralized internet grew these data silos, Facebook, Google, Amazon. And, you know, he's, he's kind of issued a clarion call for us to do things differently. And what I'm basically providing here is, is, is a whole bunch of areas that people should be looking at as infrastructure for this new internet. Another really important one is decentralized payment networks. So at least in my understanding of Bitcoin, I believe it's sort of like a settlement network to achieve what it ha what its value proposition, which is censorship resistance. It sort of necessarily needs to be slow, inefficient, expensive. That's the trade-off from an engineering perspective that the creators of Bitcoin made. Right. But Feature not can, a bug. But what you can do works. is you can attach it to other technologies. So there are three or four companies working on something called Lightning Network, which is something that your listeners should should certainly check out. And it's basically a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer payment network that you can attach to Bitcoin. So when you think about all of Bitcoin's weaknesses, it's not fast. In many cases, it's not cheap. It's not very efficient. And it doesn't offer privacy or fungibility, okay? Hmm. When you actually think about it, like Bitcoin's not really a privacy technology. The government can look at each block on the Bitcoin blockchain and kind of with forensics figure out what people are doing for now. And when it, we talk about fungibility, meaning like gold is a fungible asset because you can melt it down and then it's indistinguishable from other gold. And dollars are, you know, cash is almost fungible, right? It's very difficult to, to track the dollars by their numbers. Uh, it's almost, fun, you know, completely fungible. But Bitcoins can be, like marked, right? So the government could mark a block and say, hey, we're going to look at where these coins go and then bust somebody if we find them, right? But on second layer technologies, just like the internet is built in layers, Bitcoin is going to have things that grow on top of it that solve those things and give us speed and give us efficiency and give us privacy and fungibility. So Lightning Network is doing that, which is really exciting. It actually uses the same encryption as the Tor browser, right? So okay, the wow. Tor browser, which stands for the Onion Router, uses this really interesting way of passing information along, and the Lightning Network has adopted that. So again, it's giving you like an additional layer of privacy. The final piece to this puzzle, and, the, and a really important one, I would say, is zero-knowledge cryptography. 
So this is like a new branch of mathematics, which has allowed people to basically prove that they have something without showing it to you. So I could take this bottle of water that I'm drinking, put it behind my back, and I could say, Chad, I, I can prove to you that I have this, and I don't need to show it to you. So a right. couple metaphors that I think help. So this takes help. like Byzantine general problem and solves it twice? Or like, how, how would you describe this? Well, I would describe this in as much as, I'll give you two metaphors. One is when you go to the bar and you give the bouncer your driver's license to get in, it's kind of ridiculous that you have to show him or her your your home address. Yes. I mean, this is something in 20 years we're going to look back at. We're going to laugh at, right? All he, he or she needs to see is that you're over 21, right? right? So this is this idea of, can we take the data? Like the other metaphor would be your phone. Let's say you're using Google Maps, right? So you're giving this location data, just streaming it out there, right? Why not actually control that and, and actually decide what parts of that you'd like to give up to companies? So this branch of this new technology, zero-knowledge cryptography, is actually making that possible. So there are several applications of it right now. One is called Zcash, which is actually, and again, these different technologies kind of attach to one another, which is kind of very interesting. But uh, Zcash is basically Bitcoin plus zero-knowledge cryptography. So it's censorship-resistant money combined with being able to uh, obfuscate or obscure you know, who's doing what. So you kind of get this very cypherpunk thing of, of anonymous, unstoppable money, right? <laughs> so, and again, like these technologies, I'm not an anarchist and I don't, I don't think that we should all be thinking about these technologies as like hardcore like anarchy. That's not what they're going to drive us towards. They're going to be a check against government power, yeah. right? Because in my mind, this just leads us to a place where we're all incentivized to be honest, better people. That seems like an obvious thing to me, but do you think that's like an an inevitable thing or well what is inevitable in my mind unless we sort of really jump in and explore and invest in these decentralized technologies is is sort of you know what's happening in china today so you know we're at this moment in time where we're either going to go down this like very centralized road where all of our interactions as humans between each other are uh, surveilled policed censored or we're going to preserve some sort of sovereignty and liberty and, and decision making over those things and unfortunately, we don't have to run a thought experiment on what happens if we go down that centralized road. I mean, it's actually reality for a billion people in the world's largest country where, you know, they are enjoying these amazing apps like WeChat, which are just so much better than what we have here in like San Francisco and do everything. And it's so convenient. But all of that data, location, health, behavior, communications all get sucked up. And it's now being turned into a score for you know, individuals, right? Or yeah, well, it gets sucked up into this cloud and then the government can sit there through its proxies and look at it and start assigning people a score, right? Yeah. And I want to I wanna correct any assumptions that this is like so totally unified across all of China. It's like many different experiments happening, some at the municipal level in certain cities and right. some by companies. But basically the goal that the Chinese government is driving towards is to have everybody more or less on what they call social credit by 2021. So they're moving quickly in that direction. And what that means is your access to basic goods and services, like having fast internet or getting a preferable rate on a mortgage or being able to buy a train ticket or get a visa to leave the country. It's all dependent on correct behavior. Will will it be determined by your social credit score, sure. which of course is informed not just by your financial behavior, like here in the United States, but also by your loyalty and by your friend circle and by your demographics, your religion, your sexual preference, all these things, especially when combined with a very nationalistic government that is currently seeking to wipe out 
uh, of course, the Tibetans, which many people seem to forget about, but but also the Muslim minority re- in, in northwestern China right now. And Christians like a, are persecuted all over the Christians, place. Christians, you know, any, generally any minority that has strong views, yeah, is under threat. This this is this has been called digital authoritarianism by some people, and it's a really bad mix when you have like a very nationalistic government, basically. But I don't think. China is the last government that's going to use this. I mean, and you're already seeing it try to export this model. So in the face of this, we need to build not just decentralized platforms and technologies, but competitive ones. Like that's the difference maker. I mean, no one, I mean, so few people use encrypted messaging on its own. It's like a niche group, right? It grew out of the people who used PGP, right? We actually need it to be like better, right? So way so, better signals. So, signals great, but room for improvement. For yeah, sure. exactly. I mean, I love Signal, but yeah. it, it's not ideal, sure. you know. And until it is ideal, or even literally better than than iMessage or whatever, then, then we're not going to get to where we need to be. Absolutely. So and, and that's why quick, I'm just pushing people in this direction. Let's let's just take a step back because mm-hmm. when people hear China, sometimes they think that like, oh, we're hating on China, we're singling them out unfairly. But not many people realize just how many countries in the world are authoritarian or have some maybe some bad behaviors that people should be more aware of yeah and i certainly i love chinese people and and culture and i have utmost respect for it i just you know people should know that in the world's largest country this sort of digital authoritarianism has taken root and it's it's again not just china according to the human rights foundation we have kind of determined that about 93 countries are either fully authoritarian or or sort of competitive authoritarian structures, meaning no independent judiciary, no free press, uh, no separation of powers. So these are like highly centralized societies. And that's about 4 billion people. So this is one of the world's biggest challenges. I mean, all the big tech companies talk about solving the world's biggest challenges, right? But they never talk about authoritarianism. But it really is. I mean, when you think about just consider this, take the top 20 most prominent dictatorships in your mind, and then the top 20 most prominent democracies. Okay, so you're stacking up Netherlands and South Korea and Chile and Belgium and Norway on one side, and the other side, you've got Cuba, North Korea, Saudi Arabia. I mean, when you think about the differences in society between these two groups, everything you can imagine for humans is better in the open society, whether it's education, equality, patent rates, innovation, science and math literacy, you know, the Gini coefficient, war behavior, no two liberal democracies have ever gone to war with each other. So peace, no matter sort of what you care about, these things are better in open societies. So uh, I think we need to pay attention to that. And this fundamental piece that I've been looking at is we can kind of determine that decentralized government is is really good for humans. When you distribute power, good things happen. Now it's slower, messier, harder. Naturally, we're inclined to centralize power and to have basically a hierarchical tyranny or dictatorship. But so many good things happen when we distribute power across societies and when the people who you know are in charge of the military and the religion and the money and and you know what we do with law are separated out. You know, countries just do better. Now, the question is, you know, can we apply those same lessons to technology? And I really do think we, we should and, and we can. So you mentioned Human Rights Foundation, and this is one of my favorite nonprofits, not just because of the work you do in the world, but you really give a lot of people a voice who are, their lives are at risk. They've had either death threats or actually been attacked because they've spoken out against these regimes. And mm-hmm. I was one of the first 
events I ever went to in San Francisco when we moved out here was mm-hmm. the HRF conference. Mm-hmm. And it was just person after person after person sharing their story. And I feel like you're giving people a platform who have taken enormous personal risks for what they believe. And in an era of ultra comfort and convenience, that's really special. How do you view the work you do? And how do you describe the Human Rights Foundation to somebody that has no idea what you do? Yeah. So our mission is to promote human rights in closed societies. And the two examples I'll give are in a place like the United States or France or Japan, you have groups like Amnesty International. You have groups like the ACLU. San Francisco, you have a group like the EFF, right? Protects our digital liberties. You have incredible media organizations like the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. You have a vibrant, vibrant nonprofit. There's tens of thousands of nonprofits in the United States, just just to focus on the US for a second, that help with everything from community building to after school education to supporting media to, you know, political activity, you know, both sides of the aisle or even with smaller parties or subsets of political ideologies. We're talking literally tens of thousands of civil society groups. And that's not even to mention sports teams, stamp collectors. I mean, anyone who's operating outside of the government is sort of presenting a check to their power in some way. So we have this really vibrant nonprofit space, incredibly brave, courageous media organizations and, you know, a court system that is capable of stopping uh, the executive branch, which is which is really important. And that's that's really what an open society is all about, is this sort of competition of power, checks and balances, distribution of power. This is this is sort of decentralization in action. Now, when you look at a closed society like Saudi Arabia, to use a country that's been in the media a lot and one that we've worked quite closely with at HRF, I mean, these things don't exist. They don't have nonprofits. Human rights lawyers are arrested and put in prison. There are no independent media outlets. There isn't an independent judiciary that can slap down overreach from whether it's the king or, or his advisors or the crown prince. And it's a different environment. And and this isn't to say that like one is, you know, bad things can be perpetrated by both models of governance. But we have to understand that these are different. And, and the way that you approach these societies is different. So HRF specializes in helping people who live under highly centralized authoritarian countries. Out of all the people that you've worked with, are there maybe one or two stories of individuals that you can share with our listeners? Yeah. So one really jumps out at me because I'll be seeing him in a few days. The Oslo Freedom Forum program that you spoke about that we brought here to San Francisco is now a global thing. And we have the summit that takes place in Norway. And then we have an event here in in New York now. And then we do Mexico City, Johannesburg, South Africa, and then Taipei, Taiwan is our Asian hub. So the first Asian one is happening on November 10th. And one of the speakers is going to be this guy named Ji Sung Ho. So Mr. G is a North Korean defector. So he was born in North Korea. And he was born at a time when, as a teenager, he was sort of fighting for scraps and trying to get enough food for his family to survive. Basically, this was the late 90s, the famine years of North Korea, where this was a communist ration system, right? So through the 70s and 80s and early 90s, like you would get your food from the government. And after the Soviet Union collapsed, the North Koreans didn't have as much food. You know, they didn't have those subsidies coming in. And this combined with some devastating droughts, essentially, to create a huge famine condition where the central government in Pyongyang basically withheld food from the poorest regions. So these people all literally starved to death. So you've got this guy, Ji Sung-ho, who's 
climbing on coal trains in the middle of the night to just steal enough coal to be able to sell it in the black market to feed his family. I mean, this is what this guy's doing when he's like 14, 15 years old. I mean, think about the challenges that, you know, you think about different problems in different parts of the world, but that was his challenge. And right? he's grown up probably with no outside media, no exposure None to what all. actually exists in the world. It's just None. one state-owned media channel, maybe... The North Korean government operates a couple of TV stations and they blast radio into your home and they prevent you from reaching the outside world. And again, this is in the late 90s before the outside world started to permeate really into North Korea through things like flash drives, DVDs, radio. This was kind of like when they actually had an information monopoly. So G is just thinking that this is the way things are and he's grateful for the dear leader. And he's recognized that the dear leader has sacrificed so much. In fact, someone else told me, I was just in Korea last week uh, interviewing North Korean defectors. And he told me that during the famine, when he heard about the news that Kim Jong-il had not eaten for several days, it just lit up a warm ball of energy inside him. And he was so grateful that the dear leader was suffering alongside of him. Of course, we know that the dear leader was in a castle drinking Hennessy and eating caviar. But I mean, this is what people thought. So Ji Sung-ho is crawling on this coal train and he falls off and gets run over by the train. It cuts off his leg and his arm. And miraculously, despite the fact that there's no, no anywhere close to comparable medical care, he gets rescued. His sister comes and finds him, takes him to the hospital with no anesthesia. They, they do these amputations at all. And he somehow survives and his family nurses him back to health. And what happened was, you know, he had this, even though he was brainwashed, he had this feeling that if you were handicapped, that, that the government would take care of you or that people would actually want to help you more. And you can even see this in sort of animal societies, right? So he had this, he didn't, didn't come from anywhere, but he had this natural belief that like, somebody's going to help me. Instead, the North Korean dictatorship sort of singles out handicapped people and says they're a disgrace to our nation and says they're, they're, they're disparaging the image of the dear leader. So this is something he had to deal with. And, you know, he went to start to go into China to find food because he had to, you know, on crutches, which is just obviously as tough as you can imagine. And after a few years, he sort of said that's enough. And he and his his brother decided to escape and they went 6,000 miles on this epic journey through what basically is an underground railroad through Eastern China and through the jungles of Laos and Thailand to make it to Thailand. Because in Thailand, the government of Thailand will actually allow you to go to the South Korean embassy and North Korean refugees are allowed to fly to Seoul where they are debriefed and taught about modernity. Like they don't know what things are like plastic bags, escalators, traffic lights, credit cards. Like they don't know what these things are. So there's like a two month course. And then he was set free. Now, once he was set free, Ji Sung Ho decided to study, get educated and start an organization to help rescue people like him. This guy's a hero, you know? So he's someone that I love working with and love introducing people to. And I think the twin effect here with the Freedom Forum is that not only do you get educated and learn about things like North Korea and what's actually happening there, but it, it gives you some little inspiration for your own personal life, you know? Puts you, things in perspective I, mean, and I never want to complain again. acquired by yeah. this human being is shocking. And, and you look at him and you're like, wow. And it really fires you up. I mean, one of the side effects of going to the summit in Norway, the four-day Oslo Freedom Forum, is despite the fact that it's like very, a lot of this content's depressing and emotional, afterwards you're like ready to go, fired up. And there must be something, you know, psychological about that. Definitely. So how did you first find out about HRF and what drew you to that work? What was your inspiration like? And when did it start as a child or? Yeah, I mean, look, I was studying international relations I was abroad, I was studying abroad in London. I had 
lucky, having been lucky enough to get an internship at the British Parliament. So I was doing research for a, a member of Parliament who was in the Liberal Dem, Liberal Democratic Party with the Lib Dems, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do that summer. I was a junior, and I I was applying to nonprofits in the space, and I applied to this new nonprofit called the Human Rights Foundation, which opened you know less than twelve months earlier. And I got an internship. So I started in New York City that summer. And my job was to put together backpacks packed with technology to smuggle into Cuba for the underground library movement. So in Cuba, you can't get a book or a movie unless the Communist Party sort of approves it, sort of rubber stamps it. So we were sending in stuff like V for Vendetta and Braveheart <laughs> dubbed into Spanish with like a discussion guide. Yeah. And what was key is that it's not about Cuba. It's got to be about something else. Right. And then they would like put it together, right? Yeah. So like you're watching Free Vendetta and you're like, well, it was obviously filmed at a time when they were kind of trying to make fun of George Bush, right? But oh my God, it was so powerful for Cubans to watch this movie and then to watch the end, especially the ending. So that that was a really powerful thing. And we, we ran that program for several years and it, and it was one of the many different forces which ended up turning into what is now the Paquete system where people smuggle in satellite dishes and download content and make like an offline Netflix basically sure. and, sh and people and people leave a hard drive in your door and you take <laughs> off what you want you leave money and you know this is a network that happens and it's the way people get outside content in Cuba today so that was amazing to be a part of and I was like wow I'd love to work here long term so I've been with HRF since 2007 so I love it we're going to have to have you back on soon we like to wrap up every interview with a series of lightning round questions to get to know you a little bit better, go a little bit deeper. So if you're ready, let's jump into it. Let's do it. Favorite book you've read over the last year? I'm almost finished with scale. And okay, it's cool. pretty remarkable. Drawing distinctions between the way that organisms, human networks, and cities scale and operate. And what are these like physical laws that provide the foundation for biology? It's fascinating. Love it. I'm a big fan of anything that's like biomimetic or biomimetic research is Nature and evolution have a lot to teach us. So what's your favorite album or playlist that you've been listening to lately? I'm, I'm going to go with the classic here. That seems timely. It would be Radiohead, OK Computer, my favorite album ever. And I saw them live recently in Madison Square Garden. And there's a, a, a chorus during No Surprises where he's talking about bringing down the government. <laughs> People go <laughs> nuts, you know. It's really fun. So it mixes political and music, but I, I got to go with Radiohead. Cool. And if you have time to put your feet up are you watching tv watching a movie or do you not watch tv no my wife and i love to find time to watch tv and uh, i'll make a recommendation which was sensational and a lot of your listeners would probably like it it's called halt and catch fire okay and it's an amc show that's on netflix which charts the course of a handful of characters through the invention of modern uh, computers through the 80s and 90s through the invention of the pc the laptop the creation of the internet the search advertising and it's just so well acted it's one of these shows where season one gets like an 80 percent on metacritic and season two is like 85 season three is 90 season four is 100 like it it, it reaches a crescendo that's that's pretty breathtaking so i highly recommend halt and catch fire Cool. Any favorite apps on your phone? Doesn't even have to be on your phone, but it could be an actual device. Maybe it's Gotenna or something like that that you're using lately. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important for people to use Signal. Okay. Um, just get get used to it. I mean, yeah. it's 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 a cool way of messaging people and knowing that it's safe and yeah. knowing that no one else can see it. And I think once you start to, uh, to to sort of interact with that, it helps you see things in a slightly different light. 
I love it. Final question for everybody listening out there. How can they help support the work that Human Rights Foundation does? What can they do? How can they get involved? What's the best way to help? Yeah. So a big thing that we look at at HRF is we're not trying to engage people who are professional human rights activists. We're trying to engage the other 99% of people. And there's got to be something that you do, some talent you have, someone you know, some, some network you have that can contribute to the global struggle for freedom where you know, everybody's working towards a more perfect society, but really half of humans live in a, in a very, very repressive, under a very, very repressive government. And there's something that you can do. So I would encourage people to check out one of our programs, the Oslo Freedom Forum, and, and come to one of them. And I and like you said, you'll leave pretty inspired. It was eye-opening for op- me. Open-minded and wanting to learn more. And, you know, I will do my best to, at that event to meet you and to connect you with some cool people. And and hopefully you can, you can have a collaboration that you can be proud of. Awesome. And Alex, is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with? Any uh, final words, wisdom, or encouragement? Yeah, I mean, I'll be provocative and say, go learn more about Bitcoin. (laughs) I mean, again, it's so fascinating to me, and we could talk for hours about it. And so much of it reminds me of the evolution of how humans came up with decentralized governance. And now they've come up with decentralized money. And I think it's got a lot of lessons for our future. Couldn't agree more. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks to everybody that listened. See you next time. Thanks, Jeff. The Mission Studios creates custom media for world-class companies like Salesforce, Twilio, Katera, and more. To connect with our team of creatives, you can reach us at info at themission.co. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.